Hello. Hello. Hello, world. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, hold on a second here. If I can figure this out. Can you still hear me, Matt? Yeah. Hear me okay? Doesn't look like it. All right. Um, there's some reason I get echoes. Some reason I don't. Or some days I do, some days I don't. In any case, uh, today is June 20th, and it's 5 p.m. Central European time. I can see Myelis is in the chat room. Thank you, Myelis. Uh, today we're here to talk about going global, building SaaSes for global environments. Do you want to reset? Yeah, well, why don't you log back in and see, and see if that helps, okay? All right, let me log, log back in in 10 seconds. See you guys. Okay. Well, let's see if that sounds better. Sounds better on my side. I don't know. Maybe something going on feedback on his side. How's that? Is that better? Let's see. In any case, um, doing some research for this subject, we can see that uh, the market's changed. Or I should say, how do we go to market with SaaS's as Jane? This is always so frustrating. Um, in 1998, or before 1990, it took about 11 years for people to go to a secondary market. Uh, from 1998 to 2001, uh, we saw that drop about 5.5 years. Uh, then in just see if that helps a little bit. Uh, then in from 2002 to 2005 dropped again to 4.1 years. Then 2006 to 2011 the most recent numbers I was able to find, 3.4 years. So increasingly, companies are building, or SaaS are building to go to market internationally earlier than ever. Investors want it, helps their valuations. There's lots of reasons to do this. Of course, you can potentially reduce costs, uh, drive new revenue streams. You know, the list of reasons to do this going on. But for some companies, this is very challenging. Most companies, it's very challenging. So our guest today, let me bring him in here. Matt, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, everyone. Thanks for uh, having me. Our guest today has helped companies do this and also helped companies reach larger customers as well. And we're going to just talk about kind of this, this challenge, what this is, and some of the best practices and how to go about this. Um, Matt, maybe we should start by just giving a brief introduction about yourself yeah definitely so hi everyone my name is uh matt rosher i'm uh to give you a little bit of my career arc uh my job has always been to help uh startups go global i started as a uh consultant and pre-sales engineer i became a sales i became the head of business development in the u.s for my for a previous startup that was purchased by private equity um then i became a consultant and I helped European firms launching, uh, going global and launching the US specifically. 
And today I'm uh, organizing something called Paris Tech Week, which is a forum to help any tech company meet on the week of September 18th um, in Paris. Everybody can organize events and it's just like Fashion Week for Tech, uh, a great forum to help uh, startups uh, meet customers, grow their reach at a low cost and you know, uh, learn from each other. And once again, this is my obsession, but um, go global in Paris. Everybody can organize um, events. One of the things, my, I have a 10-year career, so I don't have a huge career, but I have seen some trends. And I think one of, the, one of the trends I've seen in the past few years, and I think particularly now that funding is drawing up, is that a lot of European startups are going back to their home market. And I go back to my career and I go back to, you know, this is, this is why we're talking today. I think it's a, I think it's a terrible mistake. I think there's some, some markets where you can stay global if you work in healthcare, if you work, you know, uh, anything that that's around the legal around compliance and then it can make sense to do a French only startup because you will have no competition, but anytime you're ambitious, you have to go global. And my whole hypothesis is, uh, the earlier you go global, the higher chance of success and also the easier it is to, to raise yourself to the benchmark that you, to the place you need to be to sell global and to sell in the U.S. specifically. When we talk global in technology, we mean the U.S., let's be honest. Yeah, I think, I think for most companies, it is the U.S. Um, there's a few specific exceptions, but, but you're absolutely right on that. Um, well, you know, one of the things we we're talking about was just some, so just to let you know, Matt and I had a conversation on this previously in the week. So we've kind of talked about this and, and I did some research on my own as well. Um, but one of the things we talked about earlier on the thing was just um, English, how important English is and the velocity of the ideas. Yeah. Um, what's your experience on that? Absolutely. So if we speak, I mean, let's... I think now that it's time of crisis, we're we're you know we're setting up a, a Paris Tech Week. There's B two B Rocks coming on the nineteenth. There's France Digital Day coming, so Paris is going to be for that week of the eighteenth a huge place for startups to meet. Um, I, I think we can take it. We're now at the end of a cycle, which has been free money. You know, for startups, as soon as you have an idea that kind of gets some some traction, you can raise money on it. Uh, we're seeing a bubble in AI too, where we're going to have you know lots of money raised for lots of companies with traction, even if they have huge churn rates. But I think it's it's important to take the opportunity of discussing you know where the European tech market is. Uh, there's a new revolution rising you, coming up, which is AI, and I think once again Europe missed it. Right, we've been missing trains again and again. And, and there's a few, in my view, there's a few reasons why. But if we focus specifically on Southern Europe. You know, and I'll, I'll say Southern Europe starts with France, which isn't, isn't exact. But I think one of the things, if we say, why aren't startups going global? The number one reason, unspoken reason I see is that the level of English of the co-founders isn't sufficient to go abroad. On paper, everybody speaks English. But mm -hmm. speaking English as in, I watched Friends on Netflix and, you know, going to see a foreigner, getting out of your home market, talking to... Um, convincing right convincing isn't the same as talking you're not just giving information you're trying to move the needle uh, that's something very complicated so if we let's go back to the title you know how do you think global on day one one of the things i i always one of the ways i vet companies i work with is i always check if one of the co-founders speaks 
great English. And if not, okay. one of my recommendations is within the first five employees, take somebody who only speaks English, but doesn't speak your mother tongue. If you're a French company and you take an American who lives in Paris, but doesn't speak French that well, you will force mm -hmm. everybody in the DNA of the company to start documenting in English, communicating on Slack in English, getting the English ready, right? Getting, getting, opening up your, opening yourself to a more global focus. Um, same, same for Germans. I, I, I've met a few companies in Munich where they had exactly that. The, their VCs pressured them to get non-German speakers to force everybody to go to English. That's interesting. And, uh, and, and one of the ways you can see this is the, comp the countries that have the European countries that have the most uni unicorns per capita, you know, Sweden, Denmark, UK, uh, Israel, if you consider Israel as part of you know, greater Europe. Uh, yeah, fair enough. You know, they, they play the euro. Um, these are all countries where the level of English is incredibly high. And I think one of the biggest barriers we have is English. Um, once again, my recommendation, you want to talk about English. Uh, you need co-founders that speak English. If they don't, recommendation number one, get a coach. I know you talked, to, you talked about this when we discussed off the yeah. record, but I, I think you know coaches uh, that help French founders and European founders learn to go from uh, speaking English to convincing in English, right? Which is, once again, not the same thing. Yeah. And my second recommendation is take non-native speakers. Because if not, when you go abroad, you'll go to Belgium and Switzerland and Luxembourg, but you'll never go. You'll have a, your DNA will be in French. And that's going to be very, a, a mold that's going to be very hard to get, break out to, break out of. I just want to point out to people out there who don't speak English as a native language or near native language level, you don't need to be masterful at speaking English to be an effective communicator or to effectively communicate or to convince people. Um, you know, there's lots of people who are really good communicators and really convincing uh, in, in English and their English is middling. So that it's not, it doesn't need to be perfect English. You just need to be at ease with English uh, because you'll be speaking it quite a bit. Um, it was interesting while I was doing research at this, I was looking at a company that uh, helps companies localize their product. And I was looking at their language on their uh, website, on their blogs, and I'm pretty sure it had been translated from another language because it had a lot of mistakes and it looked like the English wasn't very good. And already you're kind of like, just in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, when you see that many mistakes in a single blog, you're kind of like, eh. And I think, I think there's also beyond just uh, English as a language, there's a culture of communication, uh, which is in the United States, um, and this is good and bad in some cases, but people tend to be very direct. They tend to get to the point very quickly. Um, even in meetings, it seems to go right to business. I've noticed in me meetings, it, it tends to focus really like, okay, line item, light on, line item, line item, and just very quick. And it's like anything other than line item, yes or no, we move out of the meeting because that just, and so there's also just a culture of working. Um, Absolutely. You, you said, you, I just want to touch on this. You said that you think Europe missed out a little bit on AI. Why would you say that? I, I hadn't heard that expressed yet. What's your, what's your thought on that? I, I feel like every time a new technology trend comes, something very disruptive, it, it oh. cannot come out of Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, to prove it, if you take, there's a great AI company that raised a lot of money that everybody's talking about, which is Mistral AI. And, yeah. and from what I understand, all the co-founders had to go work for American companies to prove their, to prove they knew they were good at what they were doing before leaving to get VC funding. But yeah. they're more like a Silicon Valley spinoff that happens to be located in Paris than homegrown, you know, European tech firm. Um, 
I mean, there, there's multiple reasons for this. Let's go back to English. I, 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 I have a theory for particularly why the French don't speak English. And I'm not an, you know, a specialist in, in, in different countries, so I can't tell you why, if it's the same, same yeah. reason everywhere. But um, I, I think one of the things I always tell French, uh, you know, French people who, who, who are self-censoring I would, is the way I would call it. Uh, they don't go after English markets because they fear their English is bad. I think one of the failures of the French education system is this fear of looking stupid. Because if you speak and you make a grammar mistake, the teacher will bash you, right? And we spoke about this. You, you know, I grew up in the United States. You have kids who speak perfect English. They never get 20 out of 20 in English because how, how would they, right? The, the teacher is not going to give them a great grade, even though they probably speak English better than their teacher, I'm guessing. Right. Um, and, and I think the self-censorship is is a massive issue. This this fear of this fear of trying of trying something and looking stupid, fear of uh, losing face is the way I would put it. Um, and, and that's something you have to break. I think you know the in the U.S. in in the Anglo-Saxon world, which is leading in technology today, there's really a culture of try, fail, and learn. And there's still culturally in Europe a fear of failure. It's changing. You know, yeah. it's easier to be an entrepreneur today than it was 15 years ago. Um, but still, you try to, even if you want to raise VC money, it's, it's much easier if you say, I'm creating Uber for Germany than inventing Uber. The risk takers, we're, we're not a risk-taking uh, uh, continent. I think we're, 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 we like a certain level of protection. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and I think investors work like that. So why, why is Europe missing AI? I think that, that level of fear, the same reason why we don't go as global as we could, as we should, uh, I think that that is also uh, stopping disrupting innovation. It's, it's actually stopping. You always have crazy, inspirational, great people coming out from everywhere, but they get mm-hmm. you know 10x less opportunities in Europe than they would in the United States. Uh, and and you know, at least in Silicon Valley. And that is the yeah. that is true today, uh, to this day. The second reason, I mean, there's there's another. This is more like politics, but there's another reason to this, which is there's no capital markets in in Europe, right? So we have a single market for industry, right? If you can, if you build a car and it can drive in Malta, it can drive in France, right? Right. But for anything related to technology, to data, for example, you don't. The you have European laws on data, and then every country uh, regulator is going to analyze the law and you know however however they feel right so to put it simply mm-hmm. if you're a social network go to ireland because there you'll have a judge who'll be much nicer than you than if you're in france or italy italy blocked chat gpt a few weeks ago and that notion of having right. 27 regulators who kind of read the law however they can i think is quite disruptive um there's also something really really silly, which is we don't have European financial markets. So bankruptcy law is per country, right? There's no federal European bankruptcy law. Um, there's no, uh, you know, anything that has to do with uh, commerce uh, is, is country by country. So there's protections for, like, for industry. I go back. If, if you have a Renault Clio and you get it certified in France, you automatically can set it on the 27 other European countries. It's, it's not the case if you're re- raising a VC fund. Right? If you lend money to a company in Cyprus and the company goes bankrupt, how do you get the money back? Depends on the country you invested it in, right? And what that creates very simply is it creates when you have a good idea that's quite disruptive, something that's too risky, 
is mm-hmm. will not be reachable by uh, will not be re- reachable by European financial markets for a simple reason. It, they're going to take you're an insurance company. You have a hundred billion dollars, right? You're going to take your top one percent and put in super risky things, VCs, right. startups, right? Now, if your mm-hmm. fund is a hundred billion because it's French size, then that one percent is going to be a lot less than it's a if it's a you know American retirement fund that's going to be one one trillion dollars. That one percent is much bigger, and that impact is going to be much uh, much more powerful. So I, th- I think those are two reasons. There's, there's culturally, the startups, I think, are censoring themselves. We talk about the English, but we can overall, we're, we're very centric. When you live in France, you live in an island that's very centric. The successful countries are often the countries that are so small that they don't have a home market. If, you're, if you start a company in, in Holland or, or, or in Denmark or in Sweden, like on day one, you know your home market will not allow you to eat. Therefore, you forget about it. When you start a yeah. company in France or in Germany, Oh, you know, 65 million people. Like, that's nice. I can, I can get, get a nice, profitable 100-people company before I think of abroad. And, and that self-censorship is problem number one. Problem number two is if you're crazy enough to have a good idea and you're in Europe, to this day, move to America is, is you know, is, is the <laughs> default choice for a lot of engineers. Well, that's, that's my, my wife is going to be really sad to hear that because... Uh... We wanted to live in France, so if I tell her we got to move back now. Um, listen, we, we talked about successful companies, companies that have done this really well. Um, Aircall comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I, they, I, they were really successful. Why don't we talk about them a little bit? Absolutely. I, I think so. We just talked about the negative, which is you know, self censorship, right. et cetera. But let, let's talk about the positive. I think we do have what we need as an ecosystem is less companies that are local, right? If you have a local French company that gets bought for you know, $10 million and you have an entrepreneur that goes on TV and he's very happy. I'm happy for him that he made money, right? But I don't think it grows the ecosystem. However, you do have real leaders. Um, And Ericoff for me is a successor. I I don't know them personally. I've never met them. I I actually know them by sight because I shared a co-working when they arrived in New York um, uh, originally. But if you look at the Ericoff story, it's really a story of it's a, it's a Paris idea with Paris entrepreneurs out of a Paris studio called eFounders. Um, mm-hmm. On day one, they realized that this idea of let's take the phone and make it, make it uh, you know, virtual, uh, uh, put it on the internet, um, mm-hmm. was really big. They didn't even incorporate in France. They incorporated in the United States. On day one, they decided we need to go to America. It's the only place we can succeed. Uh, very quickly, they try to go Y Combinator. They try to find their first angel investors. Their first $5,000 check was uh, um, an American. They, they then went to do, I think, 500 startups because YC didn't take them. So they went to do uh, 500 startups. But they very, very quickly, not on day one, but almost on day one, right? When their MRR was ridiculously low, they went to the United States. It allowed them to do two things. It grew their customer base because the, the market is just so much bigger than Europe. Uh, once again, like you do one landing page for one marketing message, that same landing page can get you 10 times more people who will pay on average twice as much. It's, it's really, really easy. Uh, it's, it's as difficult to be successful in France as it is to be successful in the US, but the success is much more profitable. Uh, but I think fundamentally, it allowed them to, it wired them as a culture. They created a company culture that was, I want to call it, you know, Silicon Valley. Just like in industry, you have a, a Deutsche Qualität. You, you do have this notion of, of, of a, a, 
the, the Silicon Valley uh, uh, mystique ethos I guess, and the, the, just the quality of the software. It's it's so yeah. easy if you if you open Aircall and you're 10 years old, you can use it, right? And that is fundamentally what Silicon Valley is. We take we take out the complexity. Silicon Valley does invent software, yes, but I think it's a lot about packaging the software to make it available to the to the masses. Like that's that's in my view where the know-how of Silicon Valley comes from. And Aircall really succeeded in that. But they stayed Parisian. They still have a huge Paris office. They're still French. Like they, I, to my knowledge, they didn't, they didn't take their U.S. passports and burn their French passports. Right? They're they're very French. But they they decide on day one that the opportunity was so big. It was worth, you know, throwing yourself in the Champions League, to put it simply. And, and it's an analogy I use all the time. I, I always tell my customers, like, is it going to be hard? Yes. Can you get your ass kicked? Yes. But, you know, as a football player, when you go from League One to playing the Champions League, even if that first year you get, you know, you lose 3-0 and you get humiliated, it will make you better both for the Champions League, but also for League One. Anything you learn when you go into this the, the the red ocean of Silicon Valley, when you bring it back, it will make you strong on your home market. It's really interesting. Um, last year I was speaking at one of the co-founders, I, I forget the name, it's, it's a data company out of Belgium. And very early on, he went to the United States. So the, the, the two founders, one stayed in Belgium and one went to the United States and their, their product wasn't figured out when he went to the United States. But he said speaking with prospects in the United States helped them figure out their product mix. And it took him really about two years to get his feet in the United States uh, and really figure that out. But he said it helped the development of their product uh, and then as they started getting customers in the United States, big industrial customers, because what they were doing was big data on the back end and help, helping people. Colibra. Okay. Excuse me. That was Absolutely. the name of the company, Colibra. Have you, you've heard of them? I, I've okay. heard of them. I was thinking them or Celligent, which is another company I know. Yeah. That yeah. About so, so, so Colibra, so, so it was really important. And then as they started lining up big customers in the U.S., then when they came back to Europe, they could point to their big U.S. customers who were less adverse to taking risk with them and could see the value of working with them. And the Europeans started lining up and they started getting a lot more traction in their home country of Belgium. So the, the, so the first thing they started out was as a Belgian company was focusing on Benelux and France. Uh, and then from there, really their secondary market became the, the US, but that was really early on. And their product set wasn't even that mature. They hadn't even set everything in stone yet. Um, and, and, and built that out while they were there. Absolutely. It, uh, it makes sense. On the products side, you, you touched on something. Um, you said that, you know, Silicon Valley products or products from that environment, uh, tend to be really easy to use. Um, is that cultural? We were talking about English. We talk about risk adversity. Is there a lack of appreciation for marketing for product marketing still in Europe? Or is it in your opinion is, I mean, I, I just don't think it's quite at that level. I see your point. Or is it a lack of means? Or do you think it's maybe multifaceted, the, the issues here? So, uh, w sorry, let me, let, me, let me collect my thoughts. What okay. I would say is a, a product is the full experience. Every single time a customer or user touches your company, it's part of the product. Right, so the, that's how I define it. Every interaction with your with your organization, every product, people, exactly. processes, what have the you. Apple Store is part of the product, right? Yeah. And what makes a good product? So 
the first the first thing is I, I'm seeing in Europe a lot of product managers, and and then the marketing team is more junior. You can see this by salaries, mm-hmm. right? You're going to pay marketing managers going to make half the salary or you know forty percent less than a than a product man product manager, which doesn't really make sense, right? Because they're they're the extension of the same of the, of the same function, which is how your customer interacts with you and your values, and and are they reaching are they reaching the value you promised in your value proposition as quickly as possible? And are they getting the most value out of your product? Um, that's the, that's the first thing. I, I think first of all, that, that notion, the product is every interaction. That's something very important. This, the second thing, and I go back, let me take a standard, you know, French tech company from, I'm going to, I'm going to say t- 2012. I think lots of, lots of things are changing. Some things aren't, but I, I don't want to make, I want to take examples that are too modern. Um, but one of the things that the French companies do, because they feel on this island called France and they don't go global on day one, uh, at least the ones that make this mistake, um, they're going to take an ICB. For example, I'm going to help CAC 40 companies in the industrial sector. And when you do that, you're going to work with you know, Schneider Electric, you're going to work with Total, and these are the two completely di- very, very different companies. So your value propositions, which is what problem do you solve, is very large because you're going to go to companies that have very, very uh, different problems and priorities. Different problems, priorities, cultures, absolutely. Exactly. One of the advantages of the U.S. market, we go back, we should have a single market in Europe. We don't. We should have a single market for venture funding. We should have a single market for um, uh, banking, right? Why Why does Revolut needs to go to the, I mean, all the neobanks, European neobanks kind of spun out because they couldn't sell as many products as they, as they wanted because you can't sell that many you can't sell products like life insurance you know across the continent all those type of problems what that causes is when you go to silicon valley you pick one problem that one problem is going to be very niche right maybe it's going to say let's say one percent of all industrial groups had to have that business problems but because that one percent is for all 50 states you will have that mvp will have a big enough market for you to thrive to grow on and then to use to go to your next market Right. Mm. So if you think the, the way you need to think of your ICP is who has my problem? And the answer, if you're in France, is if I help industrial groups who are, you know, have at least 5,000 employees, you have five potential customers. But if you take Europe, you, you have, it just it just. Size matters, size matters. And once you have the size of a small business problem, but with enough of a market to be able to make money to thrive and to grow on, then you're able to create very, very simple solutions then you're able to throw out all the complexity to go straight to the point. And, um, and, and, and I think that really is one of the keys, one of the keys of success that I, that I've seen in the past, which is uh, your market. If you, you need to Silicon Valley companies focus really, really hard on the problem because the market is wide enough for them to succeed with a, a really small, small uh, business problem in Europe. If you stay in Southern, if you stay within, not 27 countries, because I think most of the small countries have understood that they need to go global. But if you let's talk just about, you know, Italy, France, Germany, Spain. Uh, these are countries where companies are going to have a tendency of focusing on their potential buyers. There's not that many of them. And therefore, they're going to lose focus on the business problem. And you're going to find solutions that are bloated with features that are absolutely useless, that aren't that well designed because, it, you know, it's kind of like the Grand Canyon. Every time you go see a customer, he asks for three new features and you stack the features on top of each other. Um, so the quality of products of Silicon Valley, in my view, is 
there's a culture, yes, California has a culture for entertainment, for design, for innovation, sure. But so do we in France and Italy, right? I, I think the fundamental difference in my view is the size of the market that allows you to really focus on what matters and, and tell, be able to go look at a lot of potential customers and tell them like, this is the problem I fi fix. If you don't have that problem, you're not meant to be a customer and that's okay. Yeah. You know, on some ways, when I look at the SaaS market, like, you know, this culture uh, the, has grown, has spread around the world, you know, in the last 30 years. And, 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 and so we see this now in India, there's hotbeds, you know, you talked about Israel or, you know, there's hotbeds of startups all around the world. And that's really exciting. And, and, and in many ways, this problem solving culture has grown in many, has grown around the world too. And so people are all reading the same books and what have you. Um, and so this velocity of ideas increasing and then people locally are looking at local problems and figuring out how to do this. But at the same time, I realized um, in when I, I lived in California near Silicon Valley and then I moved to Austin, Texas, which was supposed to be the next tech hotbed many years ago. And even there, you could see that there was a huge cultural difference from from Texas to California. I mean, uh, you know, Texans. They didn't have the marketing acumen that we had in California or, or the people that really that that culture of audacity. Um, so I'm excited that that's going around the world. But it sounds like there's still some structural blocks there as well. Yeah. I want to go back to something you talked about. You talked about people. So we talked about a lot of these companies have a founder or several founders uh, go over uh, to the U.S., at least one founder. Um, we talked about maybe bringing over um, English-speaking uh, personnel that don't speak the native language or the local language so that the company is forced to adopt uh, a more English-centric culture. Sorry about that, France. Boy, there's going to be a lot of angry people in the Académie Française there. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the, 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 the third thing is that once you start onboarding people to go to a country, what are the key people to bring on board early as you go to the U.S. market, since we're talking about that? So look, the success I've seen, um, there's different stories, there's different companies that have different, you know, different strategies. But one of the things, first of all, is if you're in Europe and if you are in Europe and you want to go to the U.S., my recommendation would be to build as soon as possible that global team in your home office mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. But one of the things is if you build a U.S. office, right, that is far from Paris, for example, and, and the Paris office don't have internationals, the distance plus the cultural miscommunication are going to cause problems. You need to have yeah. bridges, people who are, you know, one foot on one culture, one foot in the other on both sides of the Atlantic to be able to you know, not create seamless communication because with time difference and distance, it's never, it's never as easy as being in person, but to smoothen that out as, as much as possible. Um, the second, I mean, the, the first person I would bring, for example, is I, I, if you are creating a startup, I would have your head of marketing be a native English speaker, preferably who you know, speaks some French, but not that much. Uh, there's no reason today, in my opinion, to have French marketing, even for the French market. And for a very simple reason, if you're a startup, you're looking for innovators and early adopters, and these people are all hooked to the English media channels and the English, you know, um, uh, English tech news, English blogs, et cetera, they read English every day, right? There's some cases where that's not the case. I'm, you know, for example, if you're, if you're saying Swile, which is, you know, like a Tiki yeah. Restaurant, maybe it doesn't make sense because you're really talking about a French problem that, you know, it, it's really a, a regulatory uh, invention of France that doesn't exist anywhere else. I think it exists in Belgium, but that's about it. Um, yeah. But 
once again, the first if you if you have the first if you're if you're looking for a good candidate of who to bring as a native English speaker, your first marketer is a good uh, is a good idea. Um, I always think it's important to have developers uh, in English as early as possible. Okay. Why? Very simply, I used to work for a French company, great company, great developers uh, called EasyUp. I, I loved it there. I had a great time. Um, but the developers were all French to the point where the documentation were partially in French. Some of it was translated English, which means absolutely impossible to understand. And if you open the yeah. source code, you would have French comments because, you know, they developers talking to each other, typing at the same time, pushing on GitHub, uh, French comments to make the code visible. And as soon as we right. went global and we had developers in the US in South America, it became, we had a, a I want to call it a, a language debt to solve. So having somebody on your tech side, somebody on your marketing side, and one of your sales per people able to speak English or at least to sell in English, that can be your French co-founder getting some coaching. If you have that, you should be closing business in America from France. There's no justification. You go, you know, once every month or once every two months to the United States. You're before you raise money, you put a million dollars or two million dollars on the table to go to New York or California. These are expensive places. Salaries are high. Test your go-to-market. Find your customers, but you should be able to do so from France or for, from Europe. Yeah. Uh, we have one advantage in France, by the way, that I've seen uh, historically, which is we have Paris, and Paris has a very, you know, ha has a nice soft power. If you call an American mm -hmm. student who's bright and wants to find their first job and you tell them, hey, you want to come work in Paris for a year or two, there's a lot of Americans who would be willing to do that. A lot of Americans yeah. who don't come to Paris don't come to Paris because they can't find jobs, right? But yeah. that's a competitive advantage. It's really silly, but there's a lot of you know, 25, 30-year-old Americans who kind of take it as a gap year, but for you, allow you to have exceptional staff, great studies, uh, without having to pay the American salaries that you would have if you were to hire that same person in New York. Yeah, there's there's two things that's really interesting about what you do. There's a lot of stuff I could go over stuff, but the, the founder of Colibra said that it was really important to have a founder or a very senior person in the U.S. Uh, and he said, um, you can't manage those people remotely. And if you don't have someone closely connected to the founders over there, it's hard to manage priorities. Absolutely. Uh, because they have their priorities and then HQ has their priorities. And you really need someone who is able to kind of sift through that and figure out what needs to be done where and when. Uh, and, and, and so he's like, you, you just can't do, develop in the U.S. Uh, without having a very, very senior person over there. Um, he said early on, you know, if you just want to send someone to explore, that's fine. But once you like establish offices, you really need to have somebody who's there. And I was thinking about your thoughts on bringing over marketing talent. Yeah, I've always thought like, I know French Tech has a program where you can get visas. Yeah. So it's pretty easy for tech workers to get visas in France and come over here, especially if they have a job lined up and they have a skill that's lacking in the market mm -hmm. here. Um, but I don't know how much visibility that has in the United States. But yeah, I think there is some real soft power there. I mean, a lot of, I, and I think even people that are like of the age of having a family where they're like, okay, I've been grinding 60, 70 hours a week now for the last 10 years. I've, you know, made my title and I've made some money and maybe I'd like to go take, you know, not an easier year, but you know, a more interesting or a couple more interesting years over in France. I think that's definitely that. Some experience, right? You bring um, your kids, you put them in French school, uh, you know, they learn French yeah. for a year or two. I know. I know, um, um, I, I forgot his first name, Reed, the CEO of uh, Netflix. He actually did that. He was CEO of Netflix, but he moved to Italy for a year or a year, year and a half yeah. with his kids. 
he decided like you know i i want them to see something else in the us Let, let's let's do it right so because he was yeah. the ceo of netflix it made it easy i'm sure he has you know the company has a private jet for yeah. him but and lots of lawyers yeah and lots of lawyers right but i i i'm sure once again you, you have in europe a, a soft we do have a soft power that allows us to attract talent from it from global towns um mm -hmm. and we should use that right uh we should use that to once again global globalize your team as early as possible because if you do it pays dividends so fast and if you don't there's always either debt or a self-censorship that creates that builds up in the company i mean I, i've seen great companies with great technologies that were european and european meant you know france luxembourg Switzerland, Belgium, but only the French speaking mm -hmm. sides of each of those countries. And you're going to, yeah. okay. It's, it's kind of limiting. That's kind of limiting. Um, I think we came up with a new term. So there's the idea of legacy code, and now we have legacy culture. Yeah. It's um, kind of interesting concept. Absolutely. And I, I, think, I think it's the biggest, it's the biggest issue I've seen for B2B SaaS companies I've worked with. Right. It, it's, it's very hard. If, if, how can, let me put it this way. We, we talked, when we talked off the record, we talked, you gave this um, image of a big fish in a small pond, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's really easy to be the coolest kid on the block, right? If you're in a small pond. And if once you're comfortable, you're profitable, you're growing, you know, there's magazines, journalists are calling you, maybe even VCs are tapping at your door saying, I'm going to drop that to go abroad and maybe fail is really difficult mm -hmm. you have reached a certain comfort zone and that comfort zone is um it's at every level right it's for the co-founders are they willing to look stupid right you have a good market that works it's you're growing maybe not as fast as you thought you would but things are okay you have a great excuse with the economic crisis you can say hey, i can't raise money therefore i can't go abroad fantastic excuse um but even uh, all the way down, like you have employees who are working French every single day. Then you're going to go to them and say, okay, from now on, no more English at the office. We only speak English. Like you can say that if there's three of us and we have a fourth person who comes from abroad, right? But if there's 300 people who are speaking French every single day everywhere, and then you bring the American. I've, I've seen that. I've seen companies by the hire two late Americans who would come and stay six months and leave because they wouldn't, they would miss like two thirds of the conversations on Slack. They would, uh, uh, anything that would, uh, any event that was out of the company, but, you know, organized by employees were organized in French and they kind of felt isolated within a, within the company because of that language barrier. So, so yeah, I, I think there's a culture that, that builds up very fast. And, and in my, in my opinion, something that is very much, uh, and culture is what drives startups to grow. The U S have understood that very early. I think in Europe we're starting to, but it, it, it's actually quite new. I'm starting to hear about culture, but once again, it's, we don't understand how important it is and, and putting global within that culture, like saying we're a global company, we have to live, breathe and think like a global company it is critical in my opinion to, to being successful because if not, there's breaking the shell or breaking that, that is, is, is very expensive. It means a lot of pain. It means some people who won't be happy who are going to resign. Some people who won't be happy, therefore they, they won't be, you know, pulling or rowing the red in the same direction because they were very happy with how things were and they don't understand why we should change. Uh, so the, I go back. Why is this called, you know, think global from day one? My, my whole thesis and every experience I've seen is if you, if you think global on day one and you on day one decide not just to prospect on your home market, but to try to experiment abroad, not just to hire people, you know, from your business school, your engineering school, but also hire foreigners and people with different 
profiles from, from from different places in the world. The earlier you do this, the easier it is, and the more profitable your company will be. Well, I think I think there's a second or another aspect to this, not a second one, but there's the technical aspect of this, which is we've seen in the last few years, you know, increasingly SaaSes are using other SaaSes to build up their business. So for either putting in place services or processes or a different functionality, what have you. Um, so there's the billing aspect. So now you can, you know, a few lines of code, you know, set up billing international anywhere in the world and and definitely you know setting up billing for the dollar all these systems do that so uh you plug in your billing solution and you can bill in any and respect the local tax regulations and whatever locally because you should know the united states yes it's one big market it's a federal market but there are local uh state tax tax uh, legislation which may differ depending on state or even sometimes occasionally county or city level in, in the case of california and certain things like that so you can what used to be a big mess for billing is now, I mean, have you seen that be an issue? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the barriers, I've heard, let me, let me go back to when I started, when I started working, you know, 20, 2012, 2010, um, 2010, uh, I, I'm old. Uh, when I started working, I, I used to hear a lot of, I mean, to put it simply, I, my first company, I helped found the U.S. And the way it worked is we took parachutes and we, you know, jumped out the airplane and saw what would happen. And, and, and some of the people I spoke with who were in France, some of my colleagues and, you know, who were working in different companies in tech were, were telling me, like, it's really difficult to go abroad. Like, once again, you have the bidding, you have to find lawyers, you have to find contracts, you have to, to put it simply, the barriers of entry are huge. And what we've seen with, you know, Stripe and all the different tools, we're talking about binning, but we can even talk about edge computing, which means that today, if you run your servers on AWS Europe, you get some American customers, you just spin up some servers on US East Coast and they don't have any lag. Like there's all the barriers, of, the technical barriers of entry to going global have dropped. And mm -hmm. yet there's no global consumer tech company coming out of Europe, right? Not yet, at least. There's no uh, gigantic, you know, B2B SaaS. If you take the B2B SaaS, the biggest companies by revenue in France, the top 10, there's 10 American companies, right? And, and I go back to, I think the, it's because in my view, you can be American centric. You can even be Europe centric, but the same way it would make no sense to create a company in Massachusetts and only focus on Massachusetts customers and tech. It makes no sense to create a company in France. You have to be global from day one or else you're limiting your ambition on day one. I did something really bad. Someone asked a question in the, uh, in the Twitch chat and I, uh, I forgot about their question. So let me ask their question really quickly. Uh, question from Clement. Thank you, Clement. Uh, is it better to validate your MVP in France, identify the ICP and then go to the US? Or do you think you should just go to the U.S. directly? So you have to, you have multiple ways. I think if you if you want to go to the U.S. without an MVP, um, the best way to do it, in my view, is through that's where the incubators come in, right? I'm thinking Y Combinator, 500 startups. These are people who are going to give you the money and the guidance to be able to build your MVP for that global or the, that Silicon Valley, but which becomes global audience very quickly. So if you, if you are pre-product or or, or pre-product market fit. The incubators are there for this, and they will pay you to be able so that you can, you know, 
live, because to put it simply, America is a very expensive place to live in, um, and, and to be able to not only be there, but also tap in the ecosystem, even if you don't have a network. Um, once that's said, if you have a product, my, I mean, if I, if I take a back of table envelope, if you want to launch the US, you can get some VC funding in France, you can have, you know, BPI France, or I'm sure every country has these, uh, Wallonie in Belgium has uh, an export uh, uh, administration that funds this, but you can get some funding different places, but to go to America, it will cost you $2 million back of envelope, right? Uh, $2, $2 million over two years, and then you can start being profitable. And either you keep growing and you raise money or you're, you're break-even profitable. And, and then it really the U.S. are really going to pay dividends. Um, if you're able to close U.S. business from France, it will cost you 200 k So it's 10 times less. My yeah. whole... Uh, my whole business, my, I've, I've, I worked as a consultant for the past three years, has been to say to European customers, let's, let's budget $200,000 over 12 months and let's experiment as many things as possible with your existing product in the US. Let's go to trade shows, let's meet people, let's do some landing pages. Uh, let's, let's do everything we can so that we only set foot in the US once you have your first 10 customers, so it depends on price point, but let's say, you know, your first 100K yeah. of, a, of ARR, um, your first, um, how can I say this? You, you need your first customers, but you also need your first go-to-market, right? And, and the go-to-market means I have these 10 customers, but out of the 10, I tried, you know, 5, 50, however many different ways to reach these customers and i have like one or two hypotheses that are really strong one or two ways that i know or i i, I think i you never know but you're you're you believe will work and you have some data to back it up and that will allow you for example if you say here's the two trade shows that work and here's my technology partner that's going to get me you know to two million dollars in the next six months that's amazing it allows you when, when you go to the U.S. to, to really have everything you need to grow. Um, but you can, there's nothing, once again, you should be able to reach 100K. You should be able to sign your partnerships, find your go-to-market motion. What I call a sales machine is another uh, other term I, I hear quite a bit. But you have to start defining that before you go to the U.S. Um, it will allow you to, why do you need that? I mean, there's, there's multiple reasons why, but you save money. I think that's important, but it's actually not the most important. The second reason why you need to, go as far, sell as much as possible from home before you go abroad, at least before you go to the U.S., is um, the U.S. is a very, very competitive labor market. So the way you have to see it is if you're a European company and you come to America, by definition, anybody who accepts to work with you will have two profiles. Either they will be French Americans, therefore people who are, you know, established in America, but have enough of, you know, the, what I want to call the culture glasses understand French yeah. enough and the French culture enough to see your potential. Or you will have American employees who can't get hired at American companies. And it's great to have that French American because sometimes you need these people to help you. Once again, these, there's a whole set in New York, for example, of French Americans who do consulting. I was one of them who do consulting to help do that sales motion and, and bring the company here, here in the US. It's, it's quite useful. But the American employees you will hire are awful by definition because no American would want to work for a European startup. It's there's half the money is in American companies. There's twice the risk. There's the distance. There's the cultural distance 
for all these issues, yeah. it's complicated. As soon as you already have customers, you have success stories, you have go to market, then you can start getting great American employees because you know yeah. American sales love money and they smell money. And if you can show, look, here's I just made a hundred grand ARR from France, they're gonna say, Okay, from New York, I should be able to make a million. Let's go. Yeah. I think the other thing too is just the work culture is so different and the risk culture is so different. I mean, if you're an American worker if you're an employee or you're on salary somewhere if if you're a salesperson and you're like those sales are dropping and you're like it's a bad product fit it's a bad product marketing fit something like that or the company isn't mature or there's management issues whatever whatever the case is you're out of there if you've got if you got a good track record and a good resume uh cv for if you for that's better but they don't waste any time leaving, especially like maybe junior people, they'll stay on for a little bit, but senior people, uh, no, they're, they're on the, they're definitely going to be going on their own way out. And I also see a lot of people, these, these, for lack of a better term, these second tier people you're talking about who will soak French companies Absolutely. in the sense that they will bill out and they're like, yeah, you want to pay me 10,000 a month? Uh, and then it's so hard to manage people a distance is you, you really have to do a good job and make sure that you're managing them and getting your money's worth. Otherwise they're, they're happy to bill you and, and, you know, and they'll just wait for the next friendship company to come along and they'll, you know, they'll blame it on yeah, you. Absolutely. I, 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 I once had somebody compare it to, uh, all the, uh, young men and women who go to Hollywood to try to become an actor and you have like a whole ecosystem of fake agents who just you know, prey on their money, give me money and I'll get you the right castings. Right. <laughs> and, and then they, and they, they suck people dry. And, and yeah. I, I think there is a bit of a bit of that. Yeah. There is a, there's some of that. Once again, the, Clint, hold, yeah. hold, hold, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Continue. No, I, I was just going to finish with this. We, we, you always have to keep in mind that the best salespeople all have a point in common, which is they sell the best products. Right. So you have as an entrepreneur to front load the risk as much as possible. To prove that your customer, your product is great, you have to prove that your product is great to get the great salespeople, to get the great marketers, right? And yeah. today, there's no reason not to do it from France. You don't need to sell $10 million per year. But if you get, you know, a nice few logos, hey, we were in France, I'm flying, you know, once every six weeks, we signed Disney, we signed Coca-Cola, like, nice logos, good ARR, good success stories, and a beginning of traction, that's that's going to allow you to hire. That's going to allow you to convince, you know, people who have, who maybe already have senior positions, but already are able to get, accept the sacrifice of working for a smaller company in order to get part of the upside. Clemon came back with another question. He said, he just wanted to confirm this hundred K of ARR and 10 customers. And those are good signals. You validated yeah. your, MVP. the numbers depend what the way it depends yeah. on your price point, right? I, I have some yeah. customers who sell 100k per year ARR and others who yeah. sell you know 30 bucks per month. Um, so the way I would put it is you need to be able to prove that if I put two dollars in marketing, I get 50 cents in ARR. That's the approximate two dollars for 50 cents if, if it's if better, even better. But if you have yeah. that and you're able to say, when I do an ad, there's a conversion and here's the different steps. And here's the time it takes to sell. And here's the amount of ARR we get in the end. That allows you to show that you, you've done your homework 
that there's some data points to prove every different step. And of course, things improve over time, right? But you need to have a funnel that has been proven a few times. So if you're selling big contracts, 10 deals may be enough, right? You say, look, I have 10 deals, 100K ARR, and I already have 50 others in the pipe. And I know statistically that 10 of them are going to close, right? That's fantastic. Um, if it's smaller price point, you're going to have the metrics are going to be different. But once again, write out your funnel for the US with data points to prove it, not just made up. Like you can say, here's, here's how I did, here's how I went from you know, 10% conversion to 30% conversion for this step, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as soon as you show some visibility and you prove profitability in the end, where you prove that there's, there's a, once again, there's a big upside, you succeed. So 100K is the number I took. Uh, we, I think we reached uh, maybe a bit more than 100K before we started hiring Americans uh, back in my previous firm. But yeah, it, it was, it, it really, you need, you can't ask somebody who's really good at a really paid, well-paid job to leave for nothing. So you have to prove some funnel and you have to prove the potential. And proving means showing data and showing success. I think the other part of that is there's been a shift in the VC community just the investment community in general, they were really focused on growth. I mean, you look at companies like Twilio that got these, you know, it was a, a unicorn and got these massive investments. Um, and their whole focus was grow. They're grow your market share, grow your market share. And now that the conversation is really turned to what's your path to profitability? Yep. Um, so I think that those metrics, uh, and that makes me think of a guy called Ben Murray, who's really does a lot of really interesting posts on LinkedIn. And Ben talks, he's a, more on the financial side, and he's got all these great metrics he puts together. So he talks about average cost of service. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically you want to show that, you know, your cost for adding customers is going down and your cost for providing for those customers are going down. And you were talking about structural issues with the European market and the European market being balkanized with so many different language and regulations. It's really hard to get your cost of service lower. So that presents just structural issues for even successful SaaS going forward, which is like, how do you maintain the same profitability as, as, as a U.S. company Absolutely. Um, going forward? It's, it's, it's so challenging. There's, there's still a lot of issues with Europe as a market. Um, and I, I get your point about culture, too, because after being in France for something like 20 years, although I speak French really well, culture is still an issue. So um, culture is really key. I, I think so. Look, I, I think the difference between 20 years ago and now is that now we have success stories that showed the way. The, the first one was, the first big one was Criteo, right? But if you mm-hmm. look at Algolia, if you look at Aircall, if you look at, uh, um, I, I have 10 other names, I can't think of them because, yeah, of, course, of course, when you need the names is when you forget them. But we do have the, we do have the success stories. What I do yeah. believe is the companies that we had a set of companies. I don't want to make any enemies. I, I think every success is great for French tech and French ecosystem. But when you have a set of companies that succeed because of a regulatory umbrella, right? So anybody, or yeah. I could take you know the the accountants, software, the payment, the salary, uh, SaaS software companies we know, Swile, Swile, Payfit, uh, Penny Lane. Like these are people who will never have a U.S. competitor come in. Because no American yep. in his right mind would ever try to understand. It's too niche. It's, 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 it's niche. Too niche. So it, it's fantastic yeah. for them because it's really profitable, but it doesn't move the needle technologically. It's, it doesn't. Um, and I, I think these 
niche markets are going to run out very quickly, right? We, we digitalized the French administrative state, right? Great, not exportable, right? I think one of the reasons why PayFit's valuation was crazy is they, they literally said, hey, whatever we're going to do in France, we're going to do in every 27 country in Europe. And of course, it didn't work that way because every country in Europe had an equivalent of PayFit, right? So can't, yeah. you, you can't, the, the, to succeed in technology, you have to standardize and scale. And by going regulatory, you both become profitable faster because you have a regulatory umbrella. Once again, no American, no German, no British is going to learn the French employment law because they're not crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also going to be the barrier, uh, the, 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 the ceiling that you're going to hit quite quickly, in my opinion. But, 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 but also, in a way, it cascades down in the sense that if you have these niche solutions, for example, like Swile, okay, so you're a French company and you sign up for Swile or, or you use PayFit or something like that, assuming that that niche solution is more costly because their cost of service is higher than a global solution, a standardized solution for a bigger market, that makes just the cost of doing business across all businesses higher. So it's, it's, it creates structural issues just for the whole European economy and for the, all the different countries who are part of Europe. So I think those are issues. No, too. definitely. Once again, the, the difference 20 years ago being a global company, the, I think the first one was business object. It was the first company. Yeah. I'm not sure if they did an IPO, but they got bought by SAP. This is Bernard Liotto, who is now the head of Balderton Capital. Um, but I mean, there were one examples every 10 years, and now you have one example every year. Um, and once again, Aircall, Agoya, uh, who else? Who else, am I, who else am I thinking of? Um, once again, I, I have lots of other names. I can't. I can't think of them right now. But we have examples. We have success stories, and we also have another example in my view, which is like there's two countries I I, I look at, which I find interesting, which is uh, Israel and Sweden, right? Tiny countries that have enormous ratios when you look at you know unicorn per capita. Uh, yeah, outsized. Exactly. Just, just and, and the way they do it is, how can I put this? I'm not sure Israelis are, you know, more intelligent than Germans or French, right? I am. I'm pretty sure they're not. Uh, I do believe that, or same for the Swedes, right? But, but they have understood globalization. They go global from day one. Their market is the world, and therefore you can find a. Very niche problem, for example, air call, which was originally how to get the phone on the web, right? How to get make phone calls from your browsers, right? When they started in 2014, 2015, how many people wanted to have their phone on their browser? Not that many people, right? This was not a big problem for a lot of people. But for the few people who had, by going global, by going American, they had a total, uh, you know, they had a, a, a market size that was already sufficient for them to, you know, grow 25% per month, month on month, every month for uh, three, four years until they reach their uh, 100 million ARR and wherever they are right now. So, so I think that's, that's really the way I see it. If you, to build great products, you have to be focused. And the only way to focus on a problem on a persona is to go global so that you can have that market size sufficient enough to be able to build something great. I just want to juxtapose this conversation with a conversation I had with, uh, I think it was the CMO of HubSpot or European CMO of HubSpot. Um, so she was talking about, I can't remember if that was the person, I may be wrong there, but um, I was talking with a senior person at HubSpot about when they decided to go international. Mm-hmm. 
And so their used company, uh, I think they're out of San Francisco originally. Um, they did all their marketing in English. And of course they built a WordPress plugin. And, and, and so they went through kind of the integration strategy as well. And then their marketing and product marketing was just excellent. Yeah. They started getting calls from Europeans saying, we want to buy this. When will you sell this to us locally? Absolutely. So you, you talk about product fit and go to market strategy. When you have your prospects start uh, calling you, that's when you know you've smashed it from a, from a marketing standpoint. And it, it, I mean, that's <laughs> what a great situation. And um, a product market I, fit. I just think that that idea of, of building out your product fit, building out your product marketing, building your MVP, building your ICP, doing these things, getting some success. And then, and then building a content funnel so that people can learn about what you do and understand it and what problems you solve and then go, oh man, I absolutely need this thing. Uh, that's just so absolutely. powerful. If, if you think, so HubSpot, I think is 2007, 2008. Uh, it's, it's right around yeah. the, the uh, Obama campaign. That's, that's how I place it. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm, I'm off by a few years for, the, for the, when they started, but um, I believe I became a customer uh, you know, 2010, probably the first year I worked, we became a HubSpot customer. Um, what's interesting with the HubSpot story, there's a, there's another one I think I'm thinking of, which is uh, Qualtrics. I think Qualtrics hit uh, Qualtrics allows you to do surveys, and they they hit something like 10 million ARR, and they did 30% of the revenue in Europe before they ever hired anybody in Europe. And, and they're in Denver, mm -hmm. right? So when you we go back to going global, when you have your first step, when you're building out your startup, you're looking for early adopters. Early adopters speak English. Don't don't focus on French marketing. Unless you have a reason, once again, unless you're called Alan and then you're a French insurance company and you need to sell. Yeah, if, you, if you're, if you're, but there's a reason. If you have a global product, if you have a product that solves global problems, do your marketing exactly. in English. And Europeans will call. Your niche, your niche. Okay. And Europeans will call. Uh, the second yeah. thing you have to understand about Silicon Valley is so I think, I mean, there's a history of Silicon Valley, there's great research institutions. Uh, but from my sales guy side, what I see from Silicon Valley is, really focused they're really focused on problems that's how you know yc built something people want right they really really focus hard on problem and it allows them because of the market size you can have a very very specific persona but your market is so big that you have enough people to grow right imagine 2007 had you created a software for content marketing in france how many people were looking for software for content marketing in france for, in 2007 the idea is probably probably you know a dozen I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But 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 you have you have you have the, also the cultural issues. Let's let's say it's bigger than that. But you have the cultural issues, which is uh, getting access to money. Who has access to the budget? So yeah. someone's got to pay for this thing. You're taking a risk. So it means you're going to go out. I mean, I got I used HubSpot at a company and I had to go to my manager and said, we need this. So that was a personal risk. And so um, that's, you know, like you said, that's an issue, too. So, no, I think those are all issues. But Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and if I can add, I think the third thing is let's maybe it's not a dozen, maybe it's a hundred. Okay, there's a hundred people in France in yeah, 2007 who, who could be interested by content marketing. There's going to be at least a thousand, if not more, in the US. So that's already like a good yeah. market. And then the third component that I think we don't talk about in Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley is also a PR machine, right? Um, we talked about Belgium company. I could argue, I don't know anything about music, so I, you know, but let's say Angel which is the big French-speaking artist, really successful today, is more talented than Ariana Grande. Possible. Let's say it's the case. Let's, let's admit, right? right? 
The problem with Angel is that Angel lives in Brussels and Ariana Grande lives in Los Angeles, right? Which means that when Ariana Grande was 17 and put out her first album, it was playing in radio stations in 200 countries in the world within a week. Whereas if you're a French artist or you know French-speaking artist, Celine Dion was the same. She came from Quebec to Paris. She came from then she was really successful in Paris. She decided to go to America. Like it, it takes you 20 years to do what a 17-year-old allows you to do in two weeks because you have the PR machine that is going to push out your ideas at, at, across every corner of the world. Everybody in the world knows Elon Musk. Is he the most smartest, brilliant person in the world? I have doubts. I don't think so. But you know, he's he's very inspirational. But there's also the distribution machine, the media machine that's a, that's going to push it. And so I, there's there's something that we didn't talk about that I think we also t- should talk about, which is this is actually starting in France, by the way, with you know, France Digital and different ways of passing best practices and and mm-hmm. and the ecosystem sharing information and teaching itself. But mm-hmm. if you're selling a developer tool that is used by every developer in France, you may have a few customers in Germany. If you sell a developer tool that is used by every developer in Silicon Valley, every developer in the world is going to be downloading a version to try it. Because or, know everybody's, it yeah. or know it or hear about it. This is exactly how Slack works. Why did we use Slack in Europe? Because every time I had a friend coming back from Silicon Valley, he would go like, oh, you guys don't use Slack here? Oof, you're old school. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that ecosystem is going to broadcast information globally at, at a very quick rate. Um, if you build your English marketing and you get picked up by American media, by American, you know, uh, um, um, American journalists, but I, I'm thinking also opinion leaders, you know, so sometimes you have like a data, a database expert in the Valley who, who's going to tweet, Oh, this looks interesting. And, and then you have a million downloads. This is the story of react JS, by the way, which came out of Facebook, but when Facebook pushed it, like literally everybody laughed about it. And then it took a few, uh, two or three people on react on, on Twitter to say, this framework looks really interesting. And now React is running probably every major website that we use, or at least, you know, a good 50% of the websites that we that we use that are interactive. Um, so, so by marketing in English, you're also tapping that broadcast ecosystem. And if you do get picked up and if there is a product market fit, it's going to really help you. Uh, an American, t- uh, Silicon Valley talks about your French product the probability that a German customer will hear about it through Silicon Valley is higher than if he were to hear about it just for Paris, through Paris. I think it goes back to our, our New York, New York analogy, which is if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, Completely. And Completely. so it just goes back to that. I, I don't want to, I just want to go back to this. So we've been talking about that's the good parts about Europe that there's a lot of really creative, really talented people here, especially research, um, ecology, energy, all these different things. There's tons of universities. So there's all kinds of gray matter coming out of Europe. There's all kinds of innovation. But one of the issues is that as the companies tend to get bigger, they tend to get bought out by American companies. The ecosystem has grown. These companies are getting bigger and bigger and more and more companies, as Matt has said, have been successful in the United States question is, is how do you keep that cross fertilization going and, and what things need to be done to continue to make sure that this these successes keep growing uh in their frequency in their quantity uh in their probability and all those different aspects i think one of the things you talked about matt i thought was really interesting is the role of um marketing shows in the u.s and how different that is from europe um, yeah so uh, yeah. absolutely we, we can talk about that very quickly uh yeah. um 
one of the things that one of the I mean, there's there's lots of cultural differences within the the. Let's say you want to go to the U.S. So, actually, let me take let me take a step back. Um, what's going? I think one of the issues we have in Europe is companies aren't global enough. They're not global enough quickly enough, which means once because of that, they're not going to be global enough in the end, right? Uh, they don't have the size, etc. Uh, every time a company gets bought up by an American company, I think that's really healthy. You know, puts puts money back in the ecosystem. Let's talk about what's doing great. We have examples of companies that are truly going global very quickly, which we did not have 12, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and I feel like the more time, the more time passes, the more companies I see having this playbook of I may be European in my DNA, but I'm quickly going global to be European at the beginning, but global, you know, uh, uh, as soon as possible. Um, so we have success stories. We have more money than before. Even now we're having a, we're having a, a crash. I don't think we're going to fall as deep back as we were before we started. Right. So, uh, since at least, especially in France, the UK is different. You, you, you already, already had money, but in France we have money, which we didn't before. Uh, I feel like the culture part is, isn't, you know, we have examples, but we're not there yet. There's a lot of French companies that call me and, you know, who speaks English here? Well, nobody speaks English in the office. Oh, you know, like that's, this would be hard for me to help a 25 people company if out of the 25, none of them speak well enough English to sell in English. Um, so that's the difficulty. Um, and, and, and then once you have, the key to that is, um, I mean, everything's going in the right direction. I think we need to go global faster. And one of the ways you go global in America is trade shows. Uh, I, I, I think it's a side note, but it's very important. Let's say, Clément, you want to start looking at the U.S. How do you start? Um, I think there's something, this is one of the first, first things I explain to every European company I meet. Uh, there's a difference between trade shows in Europe and trade shows in the U.S., which is in Europe, you have little islands, you know, for example, if you take Paris, lots of people meet, there's associations, you have people from your school that you meet. I mean, there, there's lots of ways to meet. And France, UK is very much like this too, are, are countries that are hyper-centralized. Uh, if you take Germany and, and, and the Netherlands, it's less centralized, but still it's small, it's small countries where if we're rich, powerful, and we know each other, we can take a train, we can meet each other during a day, right? So the trade show in Europe has come, has become sort of a festival. Um, can I, you know, you have a music festival, right? I feel like Viva Tech is 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 a little bit like that, which is at Viva Tech that just that just finished that that was last week. We we're celebrating tech, and my feeling is that in Europe, at least my feeling, no, I, I know because I've seen the numbers, right? But whenever you do a trade show in Europe, you get a lot of branding, a lot of people know your name, you meet a lot of journalists, but you don't sell, and you don't sell anything because. The CEO of the CAC 40 aren't at VivaTech because they're more important. They have better things to do, right? If you go to the U.S., the U.S. has structured itself completely differently. Why do we build a trade show in Las Vegas? Because Las Vegas has, you know, enough room. Literally, the hotels are big enough to have 100,000 people come in. Yeah. You have a few. New Orleans is also like that. New Orleans has a lot of big trade shows because they have a huge convention center and the hotel space. Um, but you have these cities where um, that are all in the middle of the U.S. that are going to have... They're giant hotels. Giant hotels, right? Exactly. Phoenix, same thing. Phoenix. Phoenix has so many conferences. Uh, yeah. I used to go to the BI, the, the Business Intelligence and Analytics Summit every year, which was in Dallas, Texas. 
Why? Because they literally have an event. They have a place where you have convention center plus hotel for 50,000 people. It doesn't even exist in Europe. And the reason why we have that in America is because there's so much economy. There's so many businesses that are spread out so far. It's too hard to meet. So everybody flies in from all across the country for a week and meets. What it means is if you go to the Business Intelligence Summit, uh, BI and Analytics uh, Summit that is organized by Gartner every year, you will meet every CIO, every COO, and every you know, BI, head of BI for you know, the biggest 3,000 companies in the U.S., and they're all coming with one or $2 million checkbook, even if it's not objectively, like psychologically, they're all willing to spend a few million dollars to test things. And, and that means that the, the, you know, the function of the trade show is very different. And if you try to, the first step, if you try to go global, I don't, I don't care how many people you have in your company, you, you think you need to go global. I think the first, the first step I would push before, before trying to network your way through meetings, I, I've seen, I, I see some French companies try to do that, go to the trade show. Find out what is the number one trade show in your business sector, area, yeah. in your sector, yeah. and go there because in America, you will meet people with money. If you do the same thing in Europe, you will meet interns and journalists. It's true that in the United States, like if, if, you know, when, when, in France, like I have the opinion, in my, I work with my son on his startup idea, and if you have a great idea, people say, oh, that's going to be really hard to do. If you talk to, you can talk to people of all levels in the United States and they're like, that's a great idea. Um, yeah. So just even the language, they're like, yeah, if, if you had an MVP, I might even try that out or something like that. So just kind of the, the appreciation for how we look at problems and stuff like that, um, not to poo-poo on anything, but it's very interesting. What about, you know, I think we, we, we're going to be running out of time here. This is such an interesting conversation and I hope, you know, um, I hope everyone else benefited from this as much i really think this is interesting i think what's especially interesting to this is i don't know if anyone can appreciate the irony here but you have an american living in france asking a guy who spent about the last i think his last 10 years living in the united states a french guy who spent the last time about what it's like doing business in the u.s so there's a little added irony there as well um what about customer service like tech support things like that um how do how do you recommend like a european company deal with that because you can't do, in so many cases, you've got like, you know, your, your five, nine uptime. Okay, that's one thing. But then on top of that, you need to be able to provide tech support 24 seven. Um, so how do you see companies dealing with that? Or have you had to work around that? Yeah, so there's, there's different things. If, if you're in B2B SaaS, there, you're gonna, always going to have tech support. I think the first thing you need to do is plan for it. Uh, I can tell you stories, but I, I, I've had one story where I, I was at a customer who was a gigantic financial institution, our biggest customer in the U.S., and all of a sudden the, the software crashes. And it actually didn't crash. We installed the software on their servers, and it crashed the whole, their whole server, <laughs> which was even funner. Um, and I called France, and it was probably like 5, 5 in France, at 5 p.m., 5.30, right? No one's there. It was a Wednesday, and... I got, yeah, no one was there. And then I managed to, I had the personal cell phone of a guy at you know, uh, the tech in France. And he told me, oh yeah, look, uh, Thursday's off. The whole company, we all decided to take Friday off to do Le Pont. Yeah. So we'll be back on Monday. And I was at the, I was literally physically at the customer thing. Oh my God, how am I going to get away from this? Um, and actually funny anecdote, I sat, I, I, I was a pre-sales, right? Which means I'm not a developer, right? Yeah. 
I opened the code on the server and I started typing things in front of the customer for an hour and a half, pretending to know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing, what I was doing. Um, and then I said like, look, this is, this is really difficult. And I think it's probably on your side. I think it's, it's probably your server who's having issue. This doesn't come from us. And, and that's how I got away from it. I mean, I, I, I felt humiliated. I, I, I kind of saved it by, by, pushing the ball, saying that we had to meet with their team that was in India, who was managing their servers, et cetera, to, uh, to, to play the clock. But, but what I remember from this is thinking, thank God I'm, you know, thank God I'm French and the company sent me and I'm on a visa because had I been an American, I would have resigned on the spot, right? Like the, you, you feel very lonely. Um, so there's multiple things. The first thing is for tech support, when you go abroad and you start, there, there's, there will be a time when France has to manage US tech support. Or Europe. I'm talking France because we're, Europe, we're yeah. in France. But, we France but you will always have a transition and, and it is what it is. So you just have to know. And then if you have people who uh, you know, uh, have to stay, work late, etc., pay them really, really well. Uh, uh, you, know, you can say if, you're, if, if we call you for uh, if we call you uh, an hour, you have to come and, you know, an hour after 5 p.m. Particularly since it's, it's until 10 p.m., right? So if you have young people in the company, they, they're all out and about anyways, right? But if you put somebody on call, pay them really well. Don't pressure them. Like, tell them if you are on call, you will, you will get rich. And I think that that's really helpful. The second thing I did is as quickly as possible, we set up an incorporation in Colombia. Uh, we wanted to have English speakers, but we wanted to do North American LATAM on uh, Latin America on, on the same, uh, with the same office. And we put them in Colombia because they're on the central U.S. time zone, so they can take support for all of the U.S. Texas, Texas is usually Exactly. The States well. So we, I, I, we, we, when, we, when we first launched the U.S., we went to Texas before New York because mm -hmm. we didn't know if our customers would be in California or New York. So I, we spent two years in Texas, tried everything, saw that Wall Street had a great product market fit, and that's when I moved to New York. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we, we set up tech support to keep it cheap. We, we put it in Colombia. It was much cheaper than the US still. And we thought it was better to have, you know, we paid huge salaries for Colombia, a little bit lower than the US, but we had top class, really smart people. Whereas in the US, once again, at the very, very beginning, if you're trying to hire US employees, you often get the, the you know, the, the second tier because the first tier don't want to join you. Um, and, and then the third thing that a lot of companies do is uh, when you want to go from, from nine to five to 24 seven, which as soon as you sign big contracts, your big customer asks you, you know, you sign JP Morgan, JP Morgan is a 24 seven company. You are 24 seven, right? right? Five nines and 24 seven. So five nines is they want 99.999% percent uptime and you're penalized on your contract if you're underneath that. So if some services exactly. are organized like that in 24 seven. Exactly. And, and the way you, the way companies get away from that is, uh, I mean, the, 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 the way that you solve it is um, you set up a corporation often in Singapore and you pay one or two employees in Singapore to do tech support and also do sales. And I've seen a lot of European companies or even American companies where when you start Singapore to sell to Asia, it's actually not a sales operations at the beginning. It's a support to get that 24 seven, because if you get, you know, Paris, CET, uh, Central European Time, Central U.S. Time, and Singapore. You have the you you can you can do a uh, around the world twenty four seven support, and, and it's actually it's a good excuse. Once again, you will get twenty four seven as soon as you get enterprise contracts. So normally, when you get those big contracts, you have enough money to set up Singapore. They kind of come at the same time, 
Um, but our first, our first customers, when they asked us for 24 seven, we said, you know, upon signature of the contract, 24 seven support will be set up within 30 days. Yeah. And it agreed. It allowed us to negotiate that little time difference to be able to set up the operations in Singapore. And then we could go around the world and, and at least answer questions. Particularly, the contracts don't always say, don't say you need to get everything fixed 24 seven, because that's not the case. You can't, but they say you need to be working on it within, you know, I, I, maybe it was within five minutes, twenty four seven, or something like that. There's, there's a yeah, but saying it, it, it's an extra long four day weekend, and you'll come back to it on Monday. That's that's going to be a hard conversation for your local. But that's a hard, absolutely. And one of the ways you get around that for Europe is you get multiple European countries because the days don't overlap. And I think in France we have a a vacation. Uh, um, vacations are really strict. Uh, whereas in the UK, once again, you have to pay for it, right? But if you pay a guy well, he doesn't care if he skips a, an off day, particularly for your younger audience. I know that it's more difficult as soon as people have children because they're, they're kind of fixed by school. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, um, if you, if you, you can work with it, my rule, if you want to take for tech support is just to plan for it. There's nothing worse than, you know, having a tech issue in America and saying, uh Oh, who do we call? And it, it doesn't cost a lot to talk during your COMEX with your co-founders, with your employees. We're going to launch America. Here's the three customers. When we get those first three customers, if they get a question, how do we make it work? Do we do a round robin? Do we do a bonus for anybody who answers the question? Uh, if nobody answers the question, who is who has to answer? Like just setting up those rules, talking about it is is solving solve. You know, you will have the problem anyway. Might I think well that's great. It. It's it's a product issue. It's a product marketing issue. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're doing that, at some point you're going to have to make decision, and all the adults at the table are going to have to pull the trigger on something to figure that out. But it's not not something that can't be overcome. Um, I just want to give a couple anecdotes on the U.S. employment market. I thought this might be interesting for Europeans. This might be very different. We're kind of the culture in the United States is kind of like an at will work culture. So when you hire people, there's typically no job contract. Uh, typically, you just kind of have your conditions that you set out, which may be called out and kind of like a, a document might be similar to like an MOU or a brand of understanding you hours, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then people can be let go like tomorrow. You know, you come to work and they have a box on your desk and a security guard in there and they're like, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for your contributions. You're going to be successful at your next job. Uh, and that's the conversation you have. And that's how quick it is. Um, and so employers treat employees like that in some cases didn't work out and what have you. But typically they don't like to do that because training of an employee, getting them to understand your products, your, your services, so much time and effort that there's usually, a, there's usually a good relationship there. But also employees are the same way, which employees are pretty sure they can always get another job. So if they don't like your company, they're like, you know what? I may take less money to go somewhere else, or they may stay on there if they're a fighter and they may work with you, but they'll be like, but as soon as I find a better job, I'm out of here. And they'll quiet quit you. So there's issues like that. And then um, the last anecdote about that is I remember many years ago, I tried to hire an admin in Austin. At the time in Austin, Texas, there was under 2% unemployment. So the executive admin, who was kind of a lower level position for a company, and we were lucky to have one, she wanted stock options. Um, and so, and you know, you're like, you're basically a glorified secretary. Uh, you don't get stock options, but you know, the market decides you don't decide if she can go get stock options for the company, 
more power to her and, and that's how things work and so there's no there's no real set rules of like how much you pay or like in french we have a coefficient for like what your level is and what rights you have all that stuff really doesn't exist. all kind of just word of mouth and stuff like that listen thank you so much for your time before you go we have our four questions from roki we're going to try and do a little promo video from this okay sure. you ready for your four questions so try yeah. to answer these quickly so Give us a funny anecdote from your career. I think the anecdote where you're talking about typing fake code. Yes. To keep the think, customer happy. I think, yeah. So funny anecdote is I was uh, at one of the biggest financial institutions in the world. Our software was, you know, had crashed. And uh, tech support in France was off because they were doing Le Pont. You know, they had the Thursday off and then they had the Friday because who would want to come work on Friday? Uh, and I was stuck because... France would only come back to the office on Monday. It went. It was Wednesday afternoon in New York, and the south the server was crashing. I I was randomly at the customer site that day, and so I, I sat on the computer, uh, pretending to type code. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, you had the black screen of the server uh, of the commands, yeah. uh, just typing away for an hour and a half, pretending I was doing something before okay. I got up and I said, look, I think there's, we need to coordinate this with your team in India. We need to book a meeting because this is too serious. This is, I, I'm not sure it comes from our side. I think it comes from your side, but we need to have a meeting Call the expert. Great and that's how, that's how I got away from it. What would you like to improve in our industry? What's something you'd really like to see improve in our industry? So my obsession, my thesis has always been, you know, from, from my first experience and also because I, I grew up in multiple cultures. I'm French, but I grew up abroad. Uh, I always thought that going global would make you stronger from stronger. And, and the earlier you go global, the, the better. So how do we make our industry better? How do we make European tech better? In my view, would be to have much more trans-European companies and much more global companies. And this starts, in my opinion, from day one. Fits perfectly with today's show. Uh, what does SaaS mean to you? Give me three words that say what SaaS means to you. Oh, SaaS. Uh, so for me, the, I love SaaS because SaaS for me means win-win, right? You, you don't buy a product and then not use it, can it, or hate it, right? SaaS really is because particularly if you pay month on month, the, you will actually pay more money to the vendor, but only if you use it and only if you are satisfied. And that is a very healthy cycle that I, I really appreciate. Um, SaaS is also the ability of, uh, you know, something I find quite impressive of getting some of the most powerful tools in the world online on my computer in a matter of seconds. Yeah. I think that freedom is, is really incredible. I, I do remember the times when we had not only CDs, but when you would get a CD for a piece of software that was too powerful to run on your computer, therefore you had to buy, a, you know, a new graphics card for your computer and you had to change it. Like I, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember those days and, and SAS really is freedom from distribution issues. Uh, Listen, let's not talk about age here. Okay. Let's avoid that subject. <laughs> That's All right. Last thing. What's your favorite rock, rock song? So my favorite rock song is not just a rock song. It's a version of a rock song. Um, Hotel California yeah. by the Eagles. There's a version that was taped at MTV live in 1984. And I know so because the title says MTV, MTV Live 1994. And uh, you can find on if you type Hotel California uh, on Spotify or iTunes, often the live version comes before the studio version. Mm. Uh, but that live version has to be, you know, the, probably the, the rock song I, hear, I listen to at least once, once a day because it just gets the, the me in the summer. zone. That's exactly. Great. Are you going to be at B2B Rocks in September? Absolutely. 
All Absolutely. Right. So, so we'll see you at Station F. I'm sure you'll be giving a really interesting talk or talks on September 19th. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. I hope we'll have you back on because I really enjoyed this conversation. This is, I, um, yeah, I still have a lot more questions to ask and we got sidetracked on a few subjects, but it was really interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, let's do this again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, okay. everyone. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. Well, that was certainly interesting. Um, yeah, really interesting guy. Um, just a shout out. I'm on the guy on here in the chat room. He put... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious what Clement's working on because he seemed really serious about going to the U.S. I'm going to go find this guy. He uh, His last name's up in there. I won't say it on that. His last name's up there in the chat box. So I'm going to go find him on LinkedIn and see what I can figure out what he's working on. Um, listen, thank you, everybody. Again, uh, next week, we're going to be talking about um, SaaS and integration-led growth, which is kind of a cousin to partner-led growth. Um, you know, everybody's looking for ideas. How do they grow their SaaS faster? We're going to have Alex Delive, CEO of Elect, uh, on here. I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation uh, and hearing what he has to say. Hope you all be there and have a great day. Bye-bye.